This weekly podcast inspires you to step outside of your comfort zone. My name is Zakir Muhammad, and I'm your host of the Living Legacy Podcast. I am a cancer survivor, brand cultivator strategist, author, and world traveler. This Living Legacy Podcast features women of purpose sharing stories of resilience. They are single and married. They are artists and entrepreneurs who run businesses and juggle parenthood. If you are ready to hear interviews about professionalism, entrepreneurship, travel, life, and love, you are in the right place. They will share stories of how they overcame adversity while seeing life through a different lens. Let's get into it. Today is a very good episode. So as you know, the Living Legacy podcast is all about women of purpose sharing stories of resilience. For the summer, I decided to make it relevant to current events and kind of switch it up a little bit and make it more about Muslim women of purpose sharing stories of adversity. So I've only talked about this briefly. So episode five of the Living Legacy podcast, you meet my dad. I was born into the religion of Islam. My parents, my mom and dad converted, but separately. Like they met together in Atlanta, but they had both individually converted to Islam. So if you listen to episode 11 with Nimad Rabubi, she's based in South Africa, but she is also an author. So we talked a lot about uh, what it's like to be an author as well as the holy month of Ramadan. And then episode 20, I got to talk to my childhood best friend, Asia Ali Muhammad. And she is a dietitian and a nutritionist. So we talked about that journey, of course, how we, how close we are, how well we knew each other, as well as her journey for emotional eating and why she chose to be a dietitian and nutritionist. And then last but not least, my mom. Uh, we kind of had a two-part episode talking about uh, the book, because as you may or may not know, I'm also the author of Seeing Life Through a Different Lens. So we literally talked about the book. The book had just came out and we were getting rave reviews. And so we talked about our experiences, some experiences that were not mentioned in the book. But today I want to, it's not completely going off topic because it's all relevant, but this is going to be a fun conversation. I'm having a conversation with Imani Garcia. She has over 10 years of experience as a writer and a journalist. She started in sports broadcasting. So she studied it at the university. And let me just tell you that she's been on all of the major outlets that you can think of. So look up her name and you will find her on all of the major outlets. So she's a world traveler. It was almost about 10 years ago this year that she literally first started internationally traveling. So since then, she dubs herself as you know, a world media specialist. So she's also a wife. She's also a mom to a beautiful baby boy. She's also the author of a children's coloring book. So she's been in D.C., Maryland, New Jersey, New York, Florida, Georgia, you name it. But she started out also as an expat in Asia and England and Poland and China. And guess what? She is also a Sagittarius. So if you don't know what a Sagittarius is, we are the queens of December and November. So, Imani, salam alaikum, peace be with you. Thank you so much for being here. How are you today? Oh, alaikum salam, sis. I'm fantastic. Such a warm welcome. Thank you for having me, Zakira. This is like, you know, amazing. It's always great to, to do things with your sisters, with your fellow sisters. It's been harder for me to do things, you know, being abroad. But now, you know, things like Zoom are making it so much easier um, to be connected, you know, with my sisters and the dean. And so, alhamdulillah, I'm so excited to, to be here and be a part of this podcast today. 
Thank you. And thank you, yes, for Zoom. Thank you for the silver lining of all of this happening. It allows us to come together a little bit more easier than we would have if we were still traveling and trying to meet up and crossing paths elsewhere. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. So let's start with the basics. Um, you were born into the religion also, like myself, but tell me your story of how uh, your parents converted or reverted. Sure. So my um, my father's side, we're four generations in. So my father was born Muslim. My grandfather um, Muslim. My mother um, converted. My mother did convert. And then my mother and my father, they met at Howard. Well, they met like they're both from New Jersey and they had met in like similar circles, like in, in New Jersey. But then they had, I guess, like gotten reacquainted when they went. They both attended Howard University. And so um, that's where they had gotten, a, a, you know, acquainted and then they got married and um, and had us. It's five of us. I'm in the middle of five children. So um, that's literally, you know, my introduction. I was born into it. However, my parents all, um, also gave us a choice that when each of us turned 18, you know, to allow us to take our Shahada again. So we wouldn't be walking around saying, well, we're, we're Muslim because our parents are Muslim or we're Muslim because our grandparents are Muslim. So they literally gave us the choice to say, like, if this is something that you want to continue to do, this has to be something that you do on your own. You can't hold that over us. So that was something that we also had to um, decide for ourselves coming into young adulthood that, you know, we were going to remain Muslim because this is, you know, this was the way of life that we you know, that we decided not just the way of life that we grew up in. So um, that's pretty much where my beginning uh, came as far as like being Muslim. Absolutely. So I'm already feeling like you are my soul sister in a way because it's the exact same thing. Um, except uh, my parents, you know, met um, through my older sister, my mom's daughter. My dad was um, the city of commissioner in Atlanta. And then my mom was um, working at a book publishing house. And uh, it was my older sister prom night, and my dad was the limousine driver, and they met that day. <laughs> but wow, out that they were already both Muslims, so it was like okay. Um, so and then also, yeah, I too um, have always just had that choice. Uh, I was blessed to be able to grow up um, in secular uh, environments where I could learn more about Islam by uh, attending summer camps twice uh, in a summer when I was about uh, seven, eight, nine, ten, and then uh, one year in Tampa, Florida at a Islamic school. So literally think of it as like a, a Christian board school for Muslims, right? So right. then my first um, African country that I went to was Ghana. So I got to, well, where we were, it was kind of a mix of both Christian and Muslim, but that was my, mm -hmm. my first time. I was 18 years old. That was my first time uh exploring it for myself attending the mosque the master the mm -hmm. place of prayer for myself so talk about what that was like for you once you're 18 young wild and free what was that like for you to kind of exploring and maybe even coming back around if you you know we all have those moments where we kind of step <laughs> out because we don't what's going on right but uh, tell us about that how that was for you to kind of coming back around oh yeah for sure by the time i was 18 i was already in college i actually because you know we have the late birthday 
um, I graduated when I was 17. So the fall that I came into college, I was 17 years old. So, you know, especially, you know, as a Muslim, when you're growing up in a, a very non-Muslim society, you do um, come across, you know, that that identity crisis and, okay, do I want to cover? Do I not want to cover? Do I want to be like so about my dean or do I just want to kind of blend in? I was more so in the stage of like, I just wanted to blend in. I didn't really want to stand out. I didn't want people. I hated people my whole entire life asking me questions, asking me questions about my name, asking me questions about, oh, so you can't eat pork. Like, I just hated, like, I've always felt like it was like the third degree. Like, you know, you got to answer all these questions, you know, to back your identity, whereas like the Britneys and the Ashleys of the world didn't have to answer any questions about themselves, just me. So... I did more, you know, that stage of my life was more about just blending in. Like I didn't want to rock the boat too much to where, you know, people did know that I was Muslim um, when it came to certain things like, you know, drinking or, or eating pork or whatever. Like, you know, people realized, OK, she's she's not drinking. Well, why why are you not drinking? Oh, I'm, I'm Muslim. Oh, OK. Um, you know, you're not going to eat pepperoni. No, I can't eat pepperoni. I'm Muslim. So it was just those little things. But no, I didn't cover at that time. And I was 18. I was not trying to cover. I wasn't, you know, looking to do that. Um, and just, you know, figuring it out for myself. The great thing is, like, my dad will always tell me, he, was, he would always say and assure, like, you'll get it. Like, right now, you don't, it's not like necessity for you to be so you know, strict in your dean, like this is something that you have to grow into. This is something that through experiences, you're going to learn why certain things matter, why certain things are important. Um, and I remember like telling him, like, I don't get why, like we have to cover, like, you know what I'm saying? I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me. And so I was allowed, you know, through him, I was allowed that growth in really fully understanding what hijab is, what it means, what, you know, being modest means, um, as opposed to just doing it just to do it and going through the motions. Um, you know, for me, I was never like the kid that was raised in the masjid. I wasn't like at the masjid for, you know, Friday school and all of that kind of stuff. I did not go to Islamic school. I went to public schools and stuff like that. So I wasn't, it wasn't that I wasn't comfortable in the masjid, but I always felt like the masjid was like the strict place. And I, that's not the place that I wanted to be. I was like, no, cause there's so many rules. Like you can't do this and you can't do that. And you know, you can't be loud and you can't, you know, you can't have fun. So, you know, you probably wouldn't find me in the masjid unless like it's Eid, unless it's, you know what I mean? Ramadan, like those kinds of things. But, um, you know, I, I did go through my, my own self-discovery and I think all of that like encompassed my Islam obviously so everything that I have gone through whether it was you know how I dress um having my hair out um any of those things all of it kind of like went back to Islam like it kind of like took me back to like okay how does this impact me in the hereafter how does this impact you know my greatest purpose in the world am I really living up to my fullest potential as a Muslim um, you know, who am I doing this for? Am I just doing this to appease my parents? Am I doing this because, you know, I really feel good about doing this and I feel good about it internally. And I feel like Allah will be pleased with that. You know, so there was so many questions in, you know, having to navigate that, um, to where, you know, eventually I, I started doing things in small doses in smaller doses, smaller doses, covering more, 
um, you know, dressing more modestly than I had, you know, that I had been, you know, before. And just little things that made me comfortable, not everybody else, but just made me comfortable and was like, okay, I can, I can do this, but I have to do it in stages, but in my time. Absolutely. Absolutely. And that, that's the most important thing of doing it for you. Of course, we later grow to realize that we do it for the sake of Allah, subhanahu wa ta'ala, the sake of God. Yes. But not, it's so easy to get um, caught up in all the questions of, of, do you ever take it off? I want to see what you look like without it. Is it too hot for you to wear? You know, and then it's like, okay, well, sure. Like, here you go. You know, you did the face. Like, yeah, this is me. So, you know, right. But, um, no, I want to actually jump back into the community. I do completely mm-hmm. understand what you were saying about the community. So it's interesting because, uh, I mean, I too, I grew up surrounded by a community, but what was interesting to me is, uh, in, in Florida, South Florida, South Florida, it was okay. I had a bunch of, uh, girlfriends that were, you know, we were all the same age and they were they were Muslim, right? They were mm-hmm. Muslim, but then they never came back around, right? But what was interesting, what I realized though, is had I stayed in South Florida, had I not gone to uh, that the Islamic school and been around like a Muslim community, I, it would have been me too, <laughs> you know? So yeah. it, sometimes our lives just kind of take us on a path to kind of intentionally make it be full circle. So that's an amazing thing, that's an amazing thing. How did you meet your husband? And then how did Islam kind of play in that role? Like, I want to hear that side of the story. So my husband and I actually met in Cairo. So I had moved to Cairo in August of 2015. And then he and I met in March of 2016. Um, And like you said, you know, in the intro, I started my career as a sports broadcaster. And so um, people kept sending me like this link that the NFL was coming to, um, it kept saying Africa. So I was assuming like they're going to Ghana, they're going to Nigeria. Like Cairo gives you very Arab world. It doesn't give you very African unless you're like, you know, going to the museums and things like that. So, um, you know, I clicked the link and then I saw, you know, like one of my favorite players and personalities, Marshawn Lynch was going to be coming and that they were actually coming to Cairo, Egypt. And so they have a, a program called Football Without Barriers that teaches high school and college aged boys how to play the game of American football. So um, I was like, oh, my God, I have to get into this event because, you know, just to be around, you know, sports and to be around, you know, like Americans. I was like, I, you know, I have to go. So at the time I was teaching um, English literature for an international school and I had 10th and 11th grade. So I invited all of my, you know, athletic guys. I'm like, you know, if you guys go, I'll give you extra credit, whatever. None of them went, but um, I went and my husband was there, but I thought he worked for the league. So I didn't say anything. And I went with another um, a homegirl that I had met abroad um, in Egypt and she was from Compton and she, you know, she accompanied me because she was like, yeah, I, you know, I can't wait to like just see some Americans and just, you know, be around, you know, our culture. So, you know, we were there and um, we, you know, we started talking. We found out that we live very close by to each other. And we also found out that, um, you know, that he, he had been there for a while and we, we had never crossed paths. Like we lived like maybe 10 or 15 minutes away from each other. 
So we exchanged numbers, but he had mentioned something about going to um, China in uh, the next fall. And I wasn't planning on leaving Egypt. I was planning on staying there like maybe two years and then like matriculate into a different country or something like that. So I wasn't planning on leaving. Now, my husband is not born, you know, born and raised Muslim either. He's, you know, he's a convert. And um, I remember he, he had asked me, he had given me some visa papers to go to China because China, you know, uh, visa is required. And so he gives me these papers and I'm like, okay, like I'm looking, I'm like, okay, you know, what are these? And so he's like, um, I want you to come with me to China. And so I was like, originally when he said it, I thought he meant like to visit or whatever. So I was like, oh, okay, this is cool. Like, I, you know, I'll try to find some time to visit. But he was like, no, I want you to come with me to China. And I was like, no, 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 no. I don't go nowhere with no man that's not my husband. Like, that's just not how it works. That's that's not how it works. And then maybe like a day or so later, he was like, um, can I have your dad's number? So I was like, what's he trying to do? So I gave it to him because I just wanted to see because, you know, a lot of times, especially for, you know, for Muslim women, when you're dealing with men you, and you tell them you got to talk to my dad first, then all of a sudden everybody loses interest and they ain't, they, don't, they don't know how to speak no more they you know whatever the case may be so I was like okay fine you want to talk to my dad cool I gave him my dad's number and he sure did call he called and that's literally all she wrote he he developed his own you know personal relationship with my with my father but also um my father's father my grandfather my paternal grandfather had been living in Egypt for maybe like 15 years him and his wife left and came to Egypt, they built a house from the ground up. And so my father was like, you know, since I'm not there, I would appreciate if you go and speak to my my father, you know, since he's the eldest of the family, you know, at the time. So that's what my husband did. We took him to, you know, my grandfather's, they spoke one-on-one. And then um, we got married two months later and we've been married for four years. And we have the little one, the three-year-old Nasir, um, so that's literally, that's literally, you know, from how we met to how we got married, we got married very quickly. Um, because I'm like, if I'm going to China, you know, I'm, you know, obviously I'm not going as like a girlfriend or anything like that. And at the time it was like, okay, if, you know, if we are going to get married, we might as well do that sooner than later, because then I'll have to get all the stuff out of Egypt and pretty much leave, you know, leave the life that I had started there behind. So that's pretty much how it happened. This episode is sponsored by Fatico Muslim. If you are a Muslim or a woman of faith interested in strengthening your spiritual journey, get 60 uplifting downloadable devotional cards. For $5 off, use promo code LEGACY at practicalmuslim.com. That's practicalmuslim.com. And so I'm glad you did mention that beautiful story. And I'm glad you did mention the imp- the importance of what makes Islam, I feel like beautiful in a way, the fact that you do need to talk to the elder because, mm-hmm. you know, these men are so slick nowadays. And, um, <laughs> but also the, the short timeline, like that's completely okay and completely normal. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, and it, especially if it's not an arranged marriage, it's completely okay and completely normal. And mm-hmm. I appreciate you um, mentioning that. Your baby boy came, and and where was he born exactly? He was born in Poland. So we had, um, after we had left China, um, 
we had gone to Thailand for some time and then we came back to the States for a little bit. But uh, by the time we got back to the States, I was already pregnant and I just did not want to have a child in the States. Like I have generational, you know, traumatic, just relationship with, you know, medical systems and healthcare. And so I was like, you know, if we can find a contract somewhere that has a, a great, you know, medical system, I would prefer not having this kid, you know, in the United States. And so, you know, my husband who, you know, coaches football, um, we decided, and I was literally like towards the end of my pregnancy when we went to Poland, like it was literally like a last minute thing because I was like, I was adamant. I was like, I'm not having this kid in the United States. It's not happening. And so I was maybe now he came a week. My son came a week early. So I was possibly two weeks out of my due date, two or three weeks out of my two, two, maybe like two and a half weeks out of my due date, but he came a week early. So um, I had, I hadn't even realized that we were so close to like, you know, to, to giving birth, but we gave, um, but I gave birth in our living room, um, in Poland, in our actual like apartment. Um, we didn't have any medical assistance. It was just me and my husband and then eventually <laughs> Nasir and that was it. 22 hour labor. And he came and then we had a, we had a friend, um, a friend who spoke English, her husband, like, was kind of like a team helper. And, um, you know, she made sure that, like, they had a midwife come to, you know, check on him. Then she took me to the pediatrician to get him checked out. And then she took me to the gynecologist to make sure, you know, that everything was okay with me, you know, um, internally. And every, you know, everything was fine. It was a really beautiful experience. And black women are amazing. Look at that. You basically <laughs> did it. You did it, girl. <laughs> okay. So I think we it's a great segue to move on into, we know how amazing we are, but the world doesn't necessarily understand that and appreciate that mm-hmm. or appreciate that in a way that uh, makes us feel heard and valued and wanted and respected. So let's talk about your experiences with Whichever one you want to start with, whether it's, it's, it's colorism, the sexism, the discrimination against being a Muslim, tell, whichever one you want to start with, because we all go through it, right? So tell us about one time that you literally had to overcome adversity, you know, experiencing it. Oh, goodness. There's so, there's so many. Too many. Unfortunately. <laughs> Um, I would say, I said this on a panel yesterday, like, um, unfortunately, I would say my first experience, especially with like anti-blackness and racism was within the Muslim community and within the non-black Muslim community, whether it was like you giving someone salams and they not respond or, you know, you going to like step in, you know, to, to pray and like stand next to them and they move, you know, so that they don't have to have to stand next to you. These are things that I remember at a very early age before any like, white person like overtly said anything out of pocket to me or whatever it was typically non-black muslims in the masjid in a masjid setting or like just out and about you know we're in a store oh you say oh salam alaikum and they just look at you like you know those kinds of things so um i had to identify what that was very early i have very you know i have a very pro-black father so you know he we knew about these things. It wasn't like 
this wasn't discussed in our home. It wasn't like racism wasn't discussed in our home or how to deal with it or how to deal with, you know, certain things that come our way. It was like, we were groomed to understand, listen, you are black, you are Muslim, you are, you know, woman, you are man. There are going to be these things set against you. So it was like, we knew to expect those things, but it's like, when you do experience it, it's like, wow, this is, this is interesting, especially coming from the Muslim community. Um, I would say I've, I have not, to my knowledge, experienced what is considered colorism. I'm technically on the lighter spectrum of black women. Um, so I don't feel like I've, I've ever had to encounter something like that. I do have an older sister who is darker than I am. Um, my father's darker than I am. So um, I know my older sister has dealt with instances of colorism, um, but I have not. Um, as far as sexism, I don't know. In the I know industry, that I've had, the in, in the industry, in the broadcast industry, absolutely. Now, the the beauty was that the men that I did work with were much older and much seasoned in the game, and so they were more interested in teaching me than taking opportunities away from me. Um, I think more so the sexism came like when in the midst of me doing my job, like people not like making a way for me to do my interviews or like, you know, a coach that is like, okay, well, I, I just don't want to, you know, talk right now or whatever, which is like protocol. Like they know that when they're coming off that field or when they're coming off that court, typically there's going to be a reporter on the sideline asking you two quick questions and then you can go about your way. Um, as far as, you know, writing my writing career now it is it is widely known that white men get paid more than any writers. Um, that's in every industry. White men get more to, get paid more in corporate America. White men get paid more. I mean, actors. You know what I'm saying? Like it's just this is just you know every single business, every you know every single stride. Um, unfortunately, when it comes to you know writing, it's like you don't know until after the fact. You don't know that this person got paid this much substantially more until like, you know, way down the line. Like nobody's saying that right then and there um, until like, I remember this past year for 2019 going into 2020, people were doing like a recap of how much they made per article and what publication it was in. And this white guy posted how much he made for the year he posted which publications he made what. And people were like, what? They paid you what? Like people were pissed. And we were like, wait a minute, hold up. Cause this guy made a lot of money writing very minimal articles. And you know, if you're a freelancer, you usually have to write a lot of articles to make a pretty decent amount of money. And it was just like women and, and women of color. We were just like, wait a minute. Like, who is offering you this? You know, because most of the time, you know, if it's an editor, you have to send them a pitch. If you're a freelancer, you don't just automatically get to write something for a publication. Like, you have to send a full pitch saying, this is what I want to write about. This is why it's important. And they get to decide, okay, yes, we're going to go with it or no. And so, you know, a lot of times, you know, we get rejected from the stuff that they get accepted. And, um, you know, recently, most recently, the New York Times became, came under heat because they published something from, that was super problematic, um, an opinion piece. 
And the three editors that were supposed to have checked it said they didn't really read it. And it was from a white man. And I'm like, that's never happened to me before. I've never had an editor say, oh, no, you need to fix this, fix that. Like, that's always happened. They've always, like, read the piece, edited it down, all of that kind of stuff. So it was just very interesting to see the dynamic. Um, But for me, all of those things, none of those things, I think, really hindered me from continuing to just be who I am and continuing to just show up in my career. Um, With sports broadcasting, like I said, I had so many great um, older men that have been in the business for like 20 years. I'm only 33. So they've been in the business, you know, practically my whole life. And so they were just looking to show me the ropes as opposed to like, try to take anything away from me and just really see me ascend and see me win. So, you know, when it came to that and, and, and everything that I've done, I've always had that positive to outweigh the negative. I've always had the people that were championing what it is that I were doing that were saying you did a good job or this was a great article or whatever the case may be. And so it balances out when you feel crappy, when, you know, you feel like, okay, races is an issue or your sex or your gender is an issue um so that's that's always been the biggest thing for me is having that balance of the positive and the people that are saying keep going keep doing it um you know you're doing a great job we we value what it is that you do and that's what continues to like pretty much put the gas in the in the car for me to go absolutely absolutely and that's definitely the true definition of overcoming adversity with resilience <laughs> that's what this podcast is all about so you are living it girl <laughs> So right. I definitely wanted to tap, tap in on that. Um, I I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is totally agreeing on everything you say about um, the sexism and the pay equality gap. It's huge. Um, that's the biggest reason why I started my marketing agency, especially after um, being in the, in the entertainment industry as a mainly an event photographer. And there's some unfortunately it's even with the same ethnicities of if you are a man mm-hmm. even a man of color you get to a certain that you get like a certain certain line on the red carpet so you get to the top mm-hmm. of the line because you are um uh, either a man or if you're not mm-hmm. black you know the, depending on if you're not a woman like that that's the thing that's the, that was just killing me about being in the um, entertainment industry and you would think that we're all one right because that's the way i grew up yes. seeing us like we are all one. It doesn't matter the fact that I am lighter than everybody else. The fact that I do look so white and so yellow does not mean that yeah. I see myself higher than you. That does not mean that um, I'm any less than, you know? So that, that's right. what I grew up with. And of course, also the struggle of um, people not knowing what to make of me because of my skin tone, because maybe of the so-called asking people think I have that in the Muslim community, that was really my first um, experience of discrimination as well. I, I really uh, related to, we're supposed to, when you pray together, you're supposed to literally pray together, arm in arm, foot by foot, soda to soda. Right. But if uh-huh. you are praying next to someone who, um, let's just say that they don't know they are Black too, from the Middle East, right? Right. Next to them. And there's a gap. I'm like, I'm trying to get my good deed and just keep on moving over. And I'm like, what kind of game are we playing here? So, yeah, I've, I've related to that. I've definitely related to that. And definitely related to being, um, I'm so used to being uh, one of few, one of few of yes. either African-American, either woman, either Muslim. So 
Yeah, girl. It's a challenge. It's a challenge. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to um, end this conversation. I want to definitely make sure that we can put in the notes in the comments of where we can continue to follow your conversation on the web. First, what can non-Black Muslim, what can non-Black people do to educate themselves in this moment? Um, there are so many things I know that, you know, as we've been, you know, as I've been speaking this week, I know that there are a lot of black people who are tired. And I think one is to acknowledge that black people are tired and we're tired because this is an experience that we've had to live that because others haven't had to live, they've kind of put themselves in a bubble to not have to deal with what it is that's going on. And so number one, you have to acknowledge that you have privileges, right? You have to acknowledge that somewhere along the way, there is something that is afforded to you that's not afforded to somebody else. And those privileges can be race. Those privileges can be um, ableism um, and your physical ab ability. Those things can be gender. These are all privileges depending on what's more uh, um, accessible to you than, than other people. Um, you know, those things have to be acknowledged, right? And then once you acknowledge those, okay, I have privileges, which means that there's something that I can do that others can't, or that means that I'm in a group of people of haves, and that means there's going to be some have-nots. So let's take a look at the have-nots. Learn about the have-nots. Learn about what the have-nots are going through. Learn about why the have-nots don't have what it is that they need. Why it is that you have Whole Foods and Trader Joe's in your community, but I have liquor store, liquor store, fried chicken, McDonald's in my neighborhood. Um, learn about why, you know, systemically people have been oppressed. Learn about the criminal justice system. You know, these aren't things that you're going to be able to learn overnight, but brilliantly there's so many things that you can watch there's um 13th that talks about the 13th amendment you can watch that on netflix you can watch um to kill a mockingbird it's an old movie it came out in the 60s but it's still relevant to a black man being falsely accused of something very similar to emmett till very similar to the scottsboro boys um he uh he was falsely accused of raping a white woman and he didn't do it. And you can watch that. Um, you can watch When They See Us. This came out in 2019, a brilliant movie. It's on Netflix. You, there's so many things that you can watch. There's so many things that you can read, um, especially if you're a, a Muslim. Allah told the Prophet Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Ikra. That was the first thing that he told him. Before he could know anything, before he could go out and speak about anything, before he could tell anybody the word of Allah, he had to learn first before he could implement. You have to learn and then implement. So that is my biggest thing for any non-Black person that is possibly listening, that wants to ally themselves or feel like they want to help in some way. Make sure you learn first and then Make sure you put your money where your mouth is. Not everybody is going to be on the front lines. Not everybody's supposed to be on the front lines. Not everybody's supposed to protest. I am an advocate for protesting. I am a protester, but now I have a three-year-old son. So what can I do instead? Oh, you know what? There's all of these bailout funds. There's all of these black messages that need and need and constantly need. Let's begin to send our money and put our money into these organizations that are going to help marginalize specifically black people um, and underrepresented communities. So those are my three things. Acknowledge what your privilege is. Once you've acknowledged that, learn, read a book, read um, you know, a movie, whatever the case may be. Talk to friends who are willing to help you learn and give you tools on what it is that you can read and watch. And then implement it. Put your money where your mouth is. 
Yes, girl. Yes, girl. <laughs> love that. Love that. Now, um, I definitely, if I was not already following you on the web, where can I find you everywhere? Absolutely. All of my platforms is at she is Imani B is in boy at she is Imani B. That's Twitter. That's Instagram. Um, even my Facebook page is um, she is Imani B. So every single platform that I have is at she is Imani B. Perfect. Thank you. And for those who are uh, just this is your first ever episode for the Living Legacy podcast. Thank you so much for listening. Thank you so much for watching. And please continue to let us know uh, in the comments, in a review, what your favorite part was of the episode, what you love about the episode. And also follow us and continue the conversation on social media at Living Legacy Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Salaamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh. Wa alaikum salam wa rahmatullah. Thank you so much, sis. I really appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Living Legacy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe, follow, and download so you don't miss the next episode. If you want to learn more, you can visit ZakiraNayar.com. That's Z-A-A-K-I-R-A-H-N-A-Y-Y-A-R.com. Do you have any suggestions on a topic you want to be talked about? Send me an email or leave them in a review. If you love this episode, be sure to share it with your friends.